ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 190, and joining me today is my co-host Pontus Bokman. Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! Hello, Jelena. How are oh, you? I forgot, I forgot to introduce myself. <laughs> <laughs> And I am your host, Yelena Levine. Hey! <laughs> Very Just good. Just in case. <laughs> in, yeah, if there was any doubt. I know, right? <laughs> I um, hope I don't sound like Andres. I know that you you and Andres sometimes get confused in terms of your Yeah, voices. it has happened. That's bizarre. I can't see the difference. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can't see the similarities yeah. at all. You, your accents are quite different as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we, we speak English with uh, very different uh, mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of Andras, we sent him to Scotland, right? <laughs> so, Scotland! Yes. So uh, we will hear from him later in the in the show because he sent us an interview. But before we go into that, I have a, a couple of things to mention. One is an update on the really wrong story we had last week. We gave the German health minister Jens Spahn the really wrong award last week for not taking action against the public funding of homeopathic remedies. And the update is that, uh, here we go, Informationsnetzwerk Homeopathie has mm -hmm. published an open letter to Jens Spahn where they point out uh, much of the same criticism that we pointed out. And we will include a link to that letter in, in the show notes. And I believe that uh, you can actually co-sign that open letter still if you want to. So go ahead and do that if that's possible. Great stuff. Yeah. The, the other thing is I just want to uh, make a shout out to the wonderful Swedish skeptics, which I am part of. But I can do that because <laughs> I, I was not, uh, I can't take personal credit for this one. It was the local chapter, mostly the local chapter of uh, the Swedish skeptics in Gothenburg who organized the exhibition that VOF, the Swedish skeptics, had at the Gothenburg International Book Fair last weekend. And it was really fabulous. So a big shout out. There's a lot of people running around in the stand there, lots of speakers there. There were microphones, there were interviews and uh, people were stopping and saying, hey, what is this? And I think there was like 30 new members signed up and uh, very, very well done. A big shout out to, among many others, uh, Karin and Stefan and all the other uh, fantastic volunteers that uh, I was there for a couple of hours on the Saturday and it looked fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And all the talks were filmed and uh, interviews were filmed and they can be found on the Swedish YouTube, uh, Swedish Skeptics YouTube channel. Of course, they will be in Swedish. So, uh, but for our Swedish listeners, you can check that out. Mm -hmm. Brilliant stuff. Mm? Well done, Swedish Skeptics. Yes. All right. I really haven't got any, uh, any updates. Apart from watching American politics with horror in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we do too from here. <laughs> probably probably just like the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I think we should probably jump right in. Today we've got an interview. It's a very exciting interview. Long-awaited interview that we wanted to record for... I wouldn't lie if I say years, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I, I think um, we have done that, yeah. It's been a long time coming and it's an interview with Richard Wiseman, who is 
a writer, psychologist. Yes, professor, researcher. Is he also, does he also perform tricks? Uh, he has dabbled a bit in magic, I believe. Yes, I don't know if he yes, has done yes. that as a... I think yeah. that's more part of his research, but... Uh. Okay, maybe not a professional magician, but he's got interest in magic. And uh, we met him several times at QED conference, Question, Explore, Discover, in Manchester over the years, uh, where he performed his infamous chicken trick. <laughs> it won't mean anything for, for those who never saw it, but it was just a fun bit of entertainment he used to do <laughs> begrudgingly because <laughs> yes <laughs> it, it became like this very tight party trick but very awaited and and people were always looking forward to it i, I thought it was the greatest thing oh. anyways so andrish finally uh, had an opportunity to sit down with richard wiseman for an interview yes so and here we are it was a happy coincidence that andrish traveled to scotland for work and um richard wiseman invited him over yeah, without further ado, we'll we'll get straight into the interview itself. Yes. Every now and then, we interview someone whose life and or work might be interesting to a sceptical audience and who represents either an organization within the geographical boundaries of Europe or a project with a wide international reach. This time, I'm sitting down with Professor of the Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Hertfordshire, Richard Wiseman. Hello. Thank you very much, Richard, uh, for agreeing <laughs> to do this interview. So the occasion for us to sit down and talk is uh, that your latest book, Shoot for the Moon, oh. a couple of months ago, yes. uh, hit the bookstores and yes. uh, hopefully will hit the, the bestseller list That's at least as well soon. For. That's what we always hope for. You <laughs> never know. It's, it's very unpredictable, but it's out there. And um, yeah, it's a fun book to do. It's very exciting. Shoot for the Moon. Shoot for the Moon. So for, for those who haven't managed to, to get their hands on one copy of, of it yet, among your previous books there have been a couple of not motivational, but, but those alternative self-help kind of books that, yeah. that um, uh, try to do that. Is this one of those kinds of books? It, it kind of is. So when I first wrote The Luck Factor, which yep. is about uh, 2000, so my um, goodness, 20 years ago now, Self-help was being done in this very unscientific way. It was kind of practitioners going, here's a good idea. Why don't you try that? And then we had no way of knowing you know, what worked and what didn't. And we were one of the first people to kind of add some science to it, to say, let's do some experiments. We get one group of people to do one sort of whatever uh, intervention, another group to do another, and we try and work out what makes you happier or more successful or, or whatever. And then that notion kind of grew within psychology. You had lots of people trying to do that. It got positive psychology, as it, it's called. And then a lot of that work was summarized in 59 seconds. And the Apollo book, the Shoot for the Moon book, takes that notion and extends it to success and does it within the context of the Apollo missions. So part of it is social history. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, if you like, self-development. And the social history bit was rather exciting to do because I got to speak to all the mission controllers, the people that put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, on the moon. They were a very young group when they were doing that. So even now they're only in their late 70s and early 80s. I got to interview them about the mindset that they used and how we can all get that mindset and do amazing things in our everyday life. That was the, the pitch of the book. And was it you? Are you? Were you the one coining the actual phrase Apollo mindset? I think I, yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, so you I came think, up I think that's with mine. 
Yeah. Well done. As, as far as I, thank you. I, I don't <laughs> think it predates it. You never know with these things. I'm sure somebody somewhere in some course uh, had that idea. But yeah, Apollo mindset is uh, is mine. And it's the sort of eight principles that underlie what they did in this sort of astonishing achievement in a really short period of time. So it seems to me the perfect kind of template uh, to look at success. And the, the folks are still around to talk to about that. And it came about in a weird way. You know, I was at a party talking to Helen Keane, who's a friend of mine, who's a, a sort of comedian and Apollo fan. And we're talking about Apollo and the technology. And I just had this sort of odd comment where I said, has anyone spoken about the mental technology, the psychology that got us to the moon? She said no. But a friend of hers, Craig, uh, who's a welder uh, by <laughs> occupation, uh, not an astronaut, uh, he'd befriended the <laughs> Apollo mission controllers. He's just like an Apollo nut, you know, sort of like uh, very passionate about it. So I went to him. He put me in touch with them. Uh, they were very happy to be interviewed, and that was the genesis of the book. And, and all the books have these kind of weird stories behind it of how you actually come to that, that place. Um, but this one was particularly lovely because, you know, you got to, to meet real people that made history. So basically it didn't have much to do with the actual fact that this year we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. It, it had a little bit to do with that. I mean, when it was a re- that, conversation, that, that conversation was probably two years ago, a bit over two years ago now. And then I spoke to a friend of mine, again, who's sort of into space stuff. And it was actually, he said, well, if you're going to do it, do it quickly because the 50th anniversary is coming up. Oh, yeah. So I'm not a space, I wasn't a space person at all. You know, I didn't know anything about it. I had to learn it for the book. So it's all those factors kind of coming together. And, and it's lovely when that, that happens. All, all the books, you know, they've all got a story behind them because it, you know, when you just go, oh, I've just published a book, what you're not seeing is this massive process behind that where you have to have the idea, you mention it to your agent, you write the pitch document, you rewrite it, you eventually get it in front of an editor, they take it to a committee of people. If you get the green light from that, then you start to write then it goes to the PR people, the marketing people, the editors, the illustration, the cover design, and then it pops out, and then you go around talking about it. And because people never see that backstory, they just see this book yeah. appear. So, so all of them have always some kind of story there, and the Apollo one was lovely. So, yeah, great. And it uh, almost looks easy from yeah, that perspective. I, yeah, I right? think... I think I, I, mean, I, I mean, this is my 10th one, so, so you do learn a few things along the, the, the way. And that's actually my advice to authors who are starting out is, you know, don't sweat it. Get, get that manuscript out. It will never be perfect, but get it out there because as soon as it's good enough, because otherwise you spend vast amounts of your life sort of writing and rewriting and trying to get this work of, of perfection. And you know what? It's a bit like Apollo. You've got to get to the moon, not with the most elegant, wonderful spaceship you can construct with all the perfect engineering. You've just got to get there before the end of the decade. So just, you know, not cut corners, but, but don't try and get to perfection. Get to something that works. You even mentioned that there is a quote from one of the mission con- uh, the project leaders uh-huh. was, uh, who, who said that if we're going to get to the moon, at some point we're going to have to get, go to the moon. That's right. It's, it, I mean, that, that was obviously born of fear because they, they were so scared about sending a Saturn V up because those things were terrifying. But, but there is that notion of... You know, let's, let's, in that instance, he was talking about review meetings and commissioning another report and all these things. And you think, you know, let's start with the end in mind. We've, we've got to get to the moon before the end of the decade. That's our goal. Our goal is not to be perfect. You know, that was not a perfect spaceship they were sending up. It did the job. 
And I think it's the same with writing books or maybe anything. You know, sometimes you get trapped into this idea of perfection when you think, you know what, we've got to do a job here. That's why I'm a big fan of deadlines and a big fan of not saying to people, you've got unlimited time or unlimited resources or whatever, Mm. because that encourages that type of thinking. I think get on with it. It's not much fun writing a book, but, but lose three or four months of your life. Get on with it. And, and, and then see, learn from that experience. Uh, talking about learning, I'm pretty sure that in the process, because all your books are, wh- whenever you start writing a book, it is pretty obvious that it needs to be a result of a lot of inquiry and a lot of research as well. So I'm pretty sure that writing this book, you learned quite a great deal of things. So is there anything that stands out as the most important thing that you learned in the process? Well, so this was an unusual one because normally my book's within psychology. That's what yeah. I spent my entire career um, doing. So I know a lot about psychology. Here, I'm going to interview the mission controllers who are engineers, a lot of them. And of course, they know quite a lot about Apollo because they created most of it. And you can't rock up and go, I know nothing about Apollo. Tell me all about it. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not going to be your best interview. So I had to actually learn a lot about the moon stuff and and how they did it. When they started to talk about T1 and T2, you know, as soon as you land T1, T2, all that stuff, you can't really go, sorry, what's that? You know, it's really basic stuff. They're going to think, oh, my goodness, who knows to interview me? So I learned a lot about Apollo very quickly. I I think in terms of learning from them, well, one thing that was astonishing was their humility. I have interviewed many, many people, particularly when we did the luck work. I mean, hundreds of people who are extremely lucky, extremely successful. And they're very keen to tell you how wonderful they are. When you come to transcribe those interviews, uh, you see the word I throughout it. It's very, very common. When it came to the mission controllers, boy, do they not want to talk about their own amazing success. They want to talk about we, as a team, we did this. And, And in the interviews... They're constantly referencing other people. They'd go, oh, that was Jerry. Go and talk to Jerry. He's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's a, and, and so I think what comes through is a, that astonishing sense of teamwork. And something we've lost nowadays, I think, social media, I think, encourages us to tell people how wonderful our lives are yeah. and what we are achieving. And they, they really are about the group, the good of the group. And I think that came through massively when you speak to them. And it, and it does feel a, a very different generation, actually. But does that mean that uh, this is the mentality? This is such an important part of their mindset that it actually allowed them to, to this to happen? I, I think uh, it grew. It grew. So, so they arrive as, quote, normal people and young people. I mean, 21, when mm-hmm. they, they start that, that, that procedure. And uh, Christopher Kraft, who was the sort of boss, uh, who came from a very modest background... I said, I want just people that I can gel together into a team and show them how to then be successful. And so that's exactly what he did. So I suspect they weren't selected on that. They were selected on passion. I mean, that if, if they just want, if you wanted a group of people that, that were young and phenomenally passionate. And then I think they grew into that team. But it, but it is, I mean, on the day of the landings, uh, you know, they're, they're going to do this historic moment when they could lose two of their best friends, basically, if they get it wrong. And so the, the flight director, who's in charge at the moment, which is Krantz, Jim Krantz, locks the doors. He asks the doors to be locked to mission control. He said, I don't want anyone coming in or going out. He turns to this group of still young people, they're average age 28, 
And he says, you know, we're about to do this historic thing and we're going to do it as a team. And if we lose two of our friends, we lose them as a team. And if we're successful, we're successful as a team. No one walks out of here with that burden of failure on their individual shoulders because that will ruin your life. We're doing this as a group of individuals. And, and I spoke to Steve Bales, who was in the room at the time, and he said people were in tears. You know, and then they all turned around to their consoles, got on with it, and did it. So he said it's phenomenal teamwork. And it's so powerful that I have to tell you that there were moments, I was listening to it, and I'd like to get back to that in a minute. So I was listening to it while driving, and occasionally... I was thinking of just pulling over because it brought me to tears. It, it's so powerful, that feeling, that, that sense of community within, yeah. within the whole thing. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's, it's phenomenal. It's really powerful. And, and it's, it's this amazing template for success. You know, you've got this group of people. I spoke to Doug Ward, who was the voice of Apollo. He's this uh, journalist, essentially, who was embedded with Mission Control. And so he knew them all really well. And I said, what's the most extraordinary thing about these people? And he gave me the best line in the book. He said the most extraordinary thing about them is how ordinary they all were. He said this, this was not a highly selected, these are not astronauts. This is not a highly selected group of people. He said it's a bunch of young kids who are passionate mm -hmm. and in eight years achieved more than any other group probably have achieved in the, in the history of humanity. So, you know, he said they are a phenomenal group. They came from modest backgrounds, farming backgrounds, the first in their, uh, their families to go to college just passionate about making this thing happen, and they did. It is a, a phenomenal template to understand success through. So you, you are quite convinced that this can be the, the basis for a success story and is transferable to other fields as well? Yeah, I think that... I mean, so I, I struggled with this book because in the... How, how do you write this? Do, do you write the first half of the book as the story of Apollo and then the second half how you put it into your own life? Or I had, and, and there's, there's, I think, about seven or eight versions of chapter one on my computer. And eventually I decided, you know, the thing to do is to tell the story of Apollo across the book. And then you, we pull up at each moment and then you find out how to get that particular trait in your own life. And that works, I think, as a, uh, a sort of model. And so, yeah, the second half of each chapter is devoted to what you're talking about there, which is what can you do? to get that mindset. You're probably not going to put someone on the moon. You might do, but probably not. <laughs> but we've all got things we want to do in our lives in terms of career, relationships, or happiness, or whatever. How do you get that mindset? How do you get as passionate? How do you get as open to mistakes as they were? How do you conquer fear the way they did? How do you be a flexible thinker? All those things that sits in the second half of each chapter. Yeah, it's um, it's absolutely absolutely brilliant. How um, one of the things I I wanted to ask you is uh, because uh, it's not the first audiobook that I I listen to audiobook versions of your books, oh. and it's apparently you don't like reading your own books. No, I did fifty nine. I hated it because so this is the thing. I I, I talk for a living. I, I go out and give talks. I never use a script. I, I am just talking off the top of my head, driven by the slides. And so the talks are slightly different. Not Some parts of it I've done so many times, they're always the same. But then when it gets to Apollo stuff, it's slightly different each time. So stick me in a studio with a script. It's living hell. And even so though it's, it's your own Even though it's my own stuff, because it's not written to be presented. 
So when it, I did 59 seconds uh, on the earlier books. Yeah. And I'm looking at this. I'm going, no, I speak about this. I'll just talk about the gratitude exercise. I don't want to read these words. Yeah. <laughs> um, that feels like a straitjacket. And so it was like two or three days of arguing with sound engineers, and the uh, folks in charge, about how to do it. And so I said, I'll never do another one. Uh, and so I didn't. So now I think it's Peter Noble. That, Peter um, Noble, yeah. Who's yeah, yeah. fantastic and has really read all good, of them. Yeah. So yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's still your words, especially if someone is uh, used to listening to your talks, right. which I'm pretty sure that a lot of our listeners in the skeptics community are used to mm. and uh, do like uh, listening to you. So it's a bit surprising, but then, well, if, if I could just talk sense, about it, yeah, just... if I could just talk, I'd be fine. But reading it, you know, it, it wasn't written to be read out like that, and certainly not by me. So, so Pete does a great job, um, and and it's it's lovely. I've had for 20 years, I've had a policy of never watching myself back, never listening to myself or anything like that. So, yeah, I write, it goes out there, I talk, that feels like a live thing you're doing for that, that crowd in that moment. And to me, those two worlds don't sit easily together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's understandable. Us being a European-focused uh, podcast, I need to ask this. Uh, Brexit? Nope. Oh. <laughs> I think it's better if we don't. <laughs> I, I think so. Everything's better without Brexit. That's what I think, yeah. It's just that if we do leave, um, then obviously no one in Britain can listen to your podcast ever again. So it'd yeah, be a disaster. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. That's right. Because, because there, we have quite, quite a few right. uh, listeners from the UK. That so. alone is a reason yeah. um, to cancel the whole thing. But so yes. Please, please don't. Don't, don't, don't leave us, please. <laughs> or if we, um, do, if we do. If we do, we'll still listen to the podcast. That's the kind of open-minded people yeah. we are. <laughs> and it's very much appreciated. Pleasure. But I, I wanted to ask the different uh, other language editions. Mm. Um, so has it been translated to several languages already? Or I, I, I do know about uh, Italian because yep. you talked about it uh, yep. at Chikapfest in yep. Padova. I think Germany is definitely out. Okay. I think Holland and Dutch is coming out or is out. And then it's been translated outside of Europe. So Korea, China. It's, so, oh, wow. Yeah, I have this very big sort of, uh, a lot of readers in China. <laughs> I did a book called Rip It Up, uh, which was about how you change your behavior to change your thoughts. And it was okay, but it didn't do particularly well over here in uh, the UK or indeed anywhere else. And then it comes out in China with the new title of Positive Energy, and it becomes their biggest selling non-fiction book. It's huge over there for reasons that we didn't still quite, quite understand. So it became a massive book. So everything I do then sells in, in China which is kind of weird. So I know it's definitely come out over there as well. It's amazing. So, so yeah, so it will be in some other European uh, languages. But I'm not, I don't really quite keep track of which ones are publishing and when. So it's still going strong. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping for it to be a, a great success. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, going out and doing lots of talks about it. The, the fact is, you, you just never know. You, know. you put these things out there and you either sometimes get lucky or you don't or whatever. My, my hope is that it doesn't drop off as the 50th anniversary passes us by. My hope is it has legs beyond this year because that would be the fear that, that people are booking the talks and, and wanting you on radio and show so on because it's the 50th anniversary. So fingers crossed it continues um, past the end of this year. Yeah, after all, the the whole topic of the moon landing and, and what a great achievement it was should be living on. We should it's, absolutely celebrate it. it yes. was, I, I mean, when I even starting to do the book, I didn't know to say much about Apollo. Um, I didn't realize how amazing it was. 
Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. We have 400,000 people coming together. And also this this great thing that when uh, they landed, it was the world watching that. Yeah. And, and even the Soviet rocket scientists were sending over notes of congratulations. Now, this was a moment when the world came together. And uh, there is something else that I've been meaning to ask you for a long, long time. How do you come across these things that you want to re- write a book about? So is it something that, that has been in your mind for a long time? Obviously, with this book, we know that oh. you just said that it was just a conversation that popped up. But there are a lot of other things that you write about. So have you got a lot of things that you want to share with the world? Or it's more like an experiment that you want to do and you want to learn and then you might as well share it? Yeah, I think... So, so I'm an ideas person. I love ideas and playing around with them and creating new ways of solving um, problems and so on. And all of the books probably are born of odd chance comments. So the very first book I pitched was on the paranormal, Skeptical Book of the Paranormal. Yes. Boy, no one wanted to touch it. That was 20 years ago. There was no perceived market for that. And it was a chance comment from my agent When, when I said, oh, well, we didn't sell the book. I'm about to go and do some work in psychology of luck. He went, well, what's that? I said, oh, we'd sort of see if we can get people to be luckier. He went, that's a huge book. And we, that became Luck Factor. Freakonomics came out and was very successful. I was talking to a skeptic and they went, oh, you do quirky psychology stuff. And I said, yeah, if I did a version of that, it'd be called Quirkology. That was Quirkology, obviously. Very easy to translate it to other languages, I have to say. Oh, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Uh, so that, that came out. 59 Seconds came from meeting up with a friend of mine in London, and she's very unhappy and said, you know about happiness stuff? And I said, yeah. And she goes, how can I be happier? I started to explain. She goes, I'm really busy. Can you cut it down a bit? I said, how long have you got? She said, about a minute. <laughs> and so it became 60 Seconds was the pitch. And then I went to a school to give a school's talk, and some precocious kid in the front row said, oh, if it's about things you can learn in less than a minute, it should be 59 seconds. I thought that's a way better title than 60 seconds. <laughs> I'm having that. So that, that happened. Uh, Paranormality was obviously the skeptical book that, that never happened, then happened later on. Uh, the sleep stuff came from because of this other work I was doing on, on dreaming. And so all these things have these odd, odd kind of catalysts. And, and I don't think you can see it coming. I, I think... You just have fun, you enjoy doing what you're doing, you put yourself out there, you get involved in lots of things, and then you trust the little muses will just whisper in your ear once in a while and go, I think this might work. Okay, and what about what what are the muses saying now? So is <laughs> there anything in saying, the making? For goodness sake, stop writing, Wiseman. <laughs> the world's had enough of you. You have nothing else to say to anyone. I have just written a book on magic. It is a secret book, so I can't talk very much about it, but it's a book for the general public, a very mm-hmm. unusual book uh, on magic, which was a joy to write. Fingers crossed that will be out in 2020 and is a very, very different book to the sort of thing I've done in the past. So that's happening. In what sense is it uh, It's a different, I can't say too much about it, but oh, it's okay. a... It just has a very different look and feel to it than, than, than most of the things I've been working on. So that's been very exciting. And right now, what am I doing? A couple of secret kind of magic-y projects and working on a new show and a new talk. So, yeah, just sort of messing around as I've been fortunate enough to do for 20 years. Do you still have time to do research? Or Yeah, so, funny enough, just writing a research paper or starting to write one this morning... I just published one, a review on the impact of learning magic 
as a magicus therapy. It's, it's got all sorts of attributes because obviously using your hands, um, it requires memory. You get some instant feedback. It's a very good way of bonding with others. There's quite a few studies on the impact of it. We also wrote a quite technical paper on what's called registered reports. So this is this idea in psychology that you pre-register the analyses you're going to do in a study in order you don't change them after you've got your results in. <laughs> now, that's a very recent idea in psychology. It turns out in parapsychology, it goes back to the 1970s. So it's been around in parapsychology a really long time. So for about 15 years, in fact, the European Journal of Parapsychology, some of their papers were pre-registered and some were not. And what we did was to track down all those papers and we saw that when they were not pre-registered, there was lots of evidence for psychic functioning. When they were pre-registered, that dropped to almost zero. Wow. So it's a really interesting analysis. That was fun to do. So, yeah, I still get time to... And it's, it's really interesting from a sceptical point of view as well. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it, it all comes down to that. that that's um, that's those, right. Those biases. So yeah. and, and that's a European thing. It's a, a journal based in um, Holland. And so they were publishing all European parapsychology research, but not realizing they had this pattern embedded in their data that was telling us about the power of pre-registering your analyses. Hmm. We know quite a lot about that going on in, uh, in medicine, for example. Yes. Quite, I, I quite, suspect it goes on everywhere. Yeah, wow. Great. Um, so uh, good luck with all that. I wish you all the success with the book, but it, it's obviously um, doing well if, uh, yes. if it's being translated to other languages as well. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always uh, a pleasure. And good luck with the podcast. Thank That's, you. Um, it's, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, Skepticism is, is amazing. I mean, science communication, uh, sort of formally, doesn't go back that far. But skeptics, which is basically doing science communication goes back a long way. I mean, you have skeptics in the pub and all these sort of meetings yeah. and so on. So it, it, it is an amazing sort of sense of self-organized folks, normally not getting paid for doing it. It's, it's done for, for passion. So, yeah, I've always been involved in the skeptical movement, always happy to support it when I can. And do you have any take-home message for skeptics that you, we, can, we could draw from your latest book, Shoot for the Moon. I would say that the biggest message in the book is the one sceptics should probably adhere to, which is that I think sometimes sceptics think, you know what, we're a bit of a lone voice. You have this huge sort of population that are quite able and willing to believe all these weird things. And here we are, this, this small group of folks trying to fight, you know, often big business and so on. So I, I end the book by saying, you know, if, if you're facing a big challenge and you think you can't do it, Go out on a clear night, look up, see the moon, and know that within eight years, against all of the odds, we got there. Yeah. Have hope. Have hope. And I, and I think that's probably the, the, the best message for skepticism as well. I think we're going to end on that. Richard Wiseman, thank you very much for joining us. That's been a pleasure. On the show. Bye. Very good. Great stuff. So I haven't got the book yet, uh, but uh, the the book, and by the book, I mean Shoot for the Moon book, uh, latest book of Richard Wiseman. But by the sounds of it, it's a very interesting read. Yes. I have one or two Richard Wiseman's books, and um, I bought them some time ago, and they are very easy to read, I have to say. Mm. Entertaining, easy. Uh, you always find good advice in there. Yeah, and I really liked this uh, term Apollo mindset that he coined, and it's it's a fascinating story. How how just a bunch of kids with with a passion made it uh, and into the most successful t team probably ever put together by 
humankind. He always manages to find the most interesting subjects. One of the earlier experiments he did, and it's just so fun I have to remind people or to tell people who hasn't heard about it. He, as an experiment, wanted to find out what kind of wallets were most often returned to their owners if they were dropped. So he, as an experiment, (laughs) on purpose, lost a lot of wallets all around London at one time. I think it was London. To see if the contents of a wallet would influence the likelihood of them being returned. So it turns out that wallets with a picture of a child in them will more often be returned by people than than other wallets. So uh, uh, later on... He was being interviewed regarding something else by a reporter who happened to see that he had a picture of a child in his wallet. And he asked, oh, is, is that your child? And he had to reply, no, that's just a random picture of a kid that I had found on the internet. <laughs> that's typical <laughs> Richard Wiseman. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Richard Wiseman's got a great sense of humor and curiosity for life. Yes. And so he always stumbles upon these amazing topics and did he just grabs them and makes often a book or a presentation or a talk. Hmm. And uh, it's always a pleasure to listen or read. Yeah. So if you're not convinced yet, <laughs> well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I, I, I would definitely highly recommend uh, his books uh, even before the Shoot for the Moon or the previous ones. And by the sounds of it, the Shoot for the Moon is going to be just as good as, as his previous writings. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's it for the, for this week. We'll be back with a regular news episode uh, next week. Yep. Hopefully with, with Anders th- next time. And Pontus. Well, with all of us, really. Yep. <laughs> That's the goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll do our best to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Until next time. Goodbye, everybody. Paka, paka. Bye-bye. <laughs> This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Okay, uh, here we go. (laughs) One surprised cat. (laughs) Why are you clapping like that? (laughs) Okay, here we go. He always... uh, He always... What's the word? It's early (laughs) in the morning! I know! (laughs)